Welcome to Kindred, hosted by me, Kate, and my sister, Jen. In this podcast, we explore our human relationship to the natural world. In connecting to this planet, we also connect to understanding, compassion, and empathy. How can we see ourselves as not separate or above animals in nature, but a critical and integrated part of an active ecosystem? Through conversations with animal advocates, scientists, conservationists, and many others, we look to inspire a new awareness of how and why we connect to animals in nature in order to repair and restore our relationship to the natural world. Hey there, and welcome to Kindred. This is a podcast where we we dazzle you with... Um, our editing we dazzle you with our editing um no you are dazzled by all that you do not hear walls right sister that's true i mean not so much in our conversations with guests because we edit that very very little but more like the intros and takeaways yeah let's say gotta edit sparkle after we edit our interruptions our false starts our coughs um yeah. And which makes That's me think of uh-huh, right? Which makes me think of our Kindred Plus, which we are offering now, and an episode that cat wouldn't let me name too much dairy. So <laughs> <laughs> Wow. So yes, um in our Kindred Plus content. Um in one of our episodes during that, we uh, uh um in context of that, we talked with our editor Dan Cooper. Um, about the editing process, and it was absolutely hilarious. Um, and that content is part of our bonus plan to offer you extra content for our for your incredible donation of four ninety nine a month. I mean, I mean, I know, I know what it takes for me to donate to people, and so I we so appreciate when you support us, and we work super duper hard, and we want our guests to feel that. Um, and we also want you to feel that. So um, please consider uh, subscribing. And when you do subscribe, that's when you'll get the Kindred Plus content. So we are excited about that. What are you waiting for, really? Are you? Oh my gosh, what are you waiting for? And guess what else? You can have a free week trial. So you can kind of cram it into all one week and then be like, oh yeah, that's worth, that was worth, like a week is worth $4.99, I think, really. Right. And that's where like, I love the cup, buy me, buy me a coffee on the website. You can find just because it's like for the price of a cup of coffee, which is basically $4.99 anyone, like a month, you could support us, which just would mean the world. So head to our website, kindredpodcast.co and check out how you might support us here at Kindred. So are you ready to move on to our guest today? Totally. Um, Jennifer, what a powerhouse we got to speak with. I mean, wowza. This conversation was deeply impacting and um, really critical on just so many levels. So today we are speaking with Dr. Andrea Reed, who is assistant professor at the University of British Columbia's Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries and Principal Investigator at the Center for Indigenous Fisheries, um, which she was huge in establishing. Um, I'm going to read a little, a, a brief, an extremely boiled down description of her work taken from the website from Center for Indigenous Fisheries at cif.fish. Um, Andrea leads along with an incredible team of exceptional humans, uh, quote, the Center for Indigenous Fisheries, working to build momentum and action in support of the study and protection of culturally significant fish and fisheries, end quote. Um, and please do check out their website, uh, cif.fish, for more information on the work they're doing. It is a fantastic uh, resource. Um, it's a beautifully laid out website and you can also find her at uh, University of British Columbia's website too. Um, so we wanted to speak with Andrea 
about all things fish in context to indigenous knowledge and science and what that includes and breaking down the differences between native fishing practices and Western fishing industry. Um, I've been hearing about and reading about salmon in connection to land, fishing practices, place, and what this all means, not only to indigenous nations of Canada and the US, but to the world of ecology and conservation. Um, and, and how critical sustainable practices are so deeply needed, desperately needed because of Western industry fishing and the impact it has had on the environment and so much more for what the last 100, 200-ish years, um, somewhere in that, it's a long history. So um, thank you to Andrea for speaking with us today. We, we adored the conversation and also it was one of the hardest ones to move on from. We could have talked to her, to her for, for many, many more minutes and maybe um, she'll come back and visit with us again. But um, yeah, let's jump in because there's no world where I can explain or even begin to break down all that there is here. And I will let the expert, Dr. Andrea Reed, take us to the river and into the world of freshwater fishing. See you at the takeaway. Andrea, hello and welcome to Kindred. Would you please introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Sure, I'm very happy to be here. My name's Andrea. I'm a citizen of the Niska Nation, which sits on the British Columbia, Alaska border. I'm also of Irish settler descent, was raised well outside my territory on the opposite side of, of Canada. Um, and I grew up just surrounded by ocean and fish and grew up loving seafood and just had that as much as part of my life as I could possibly make it and was swimming with my brothers as much as I possibly could. Um, and so that really drove into me a deep, deep, deep love of, of water and of fish. But I had no idea that that was a path or a, a job, really. I um, knew that I loved science. I was great with like math and physics. And I thought I was going to go into something really quantitative. And I went off to university to have my hopes really dashed by <laughs> calculus one and physics one that were so oh, abstract. Amen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not not for me. But then I found ecology and I, I really fell in love and found this way to be outside for, for science. And so that's what really got me down this this path that I'm in now. So I'm an indigenous fisheries scientist. I focus on fisheries questions with and for indigenous nations, focusing principally in British Columbia. I'm an assistant professor at the University of British Columbia, where I lead a group aptly called the Center for Indigenous Fisheries. Wow, that's just an incredible little history. Um, thank you for sharing that with us. It sounds like um, a beautiful story in so many ways. There's so much, I, you know, gosh, we could talk about that forever. And I just have to say, your background is so beautiful. Um, it's very distracting. And you were saying that so you're, where you live is you're beautiful. There's mountains, there's a river, there's just greenery. And uh, it's just really, really beautiful. So um yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so we're here to talk to you about your work at, like you're saying, at the University of British Columbia's Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries and the Center for Indigenous Fisheries. But I feel that it's, before we get to that, it's it's imperative to our understanding of why you do what you do that we go back. I think, um, you know, we need to go back to a time before government, before industry, before regulations and restrictions to people and fish, before dams and the reconstruction of land and rivers. So talk to us about what a balanced and healthy and integrated fishing life looked like and the relationship um, indigenous nations had to fish and rivers and forests. Yeah, it's a 
Great question with a lot in it. So I, I just want to pause. I mean, fish are so central today for Indigenous nations around the world. And so one, one thing I might offer in that in that phrasing is, is, is to bring it into the present tense in that I know we're, we're thinking about how we engage ancestral ways, and that's something that we absolutely do within our center. But we're very much talking about contemporary peoples, contemporary practices, and how those ancestral ways are are also evolving in, in a modern day context. Um, fish are fundamental to, to who we are. They're part of our identity up and down this coast. So many nations identify as salmon people. Um, it really shapes how we live in our territory and, and how we define our responsibilities. You mentioned my, my background in this, in this Zoom space being our beautiful valley. And you can see our river, which is called the Nass River, which is actually a Klingit word. So from our neighbors to the north. And it's a word that means intestines or guts because of how prolific fish are in our river they're a food source they're a food like a bread basket for us but also for neighboring nations and our word for our river different from nas is lisms and lisms means murky and it's because of how much milt is in the water from the fish so we just look at this river and we see fish and all that they connect to for us and so I'm often in this space of talking about fisheries as these really in-depth sites of interaction where we're engaging with these ancient lifeways and engaging in place. Um, but that's it's during fishing that we practice our languages, that we learn our fundamental laws that guide who we are, that we respect our governance systems, um, that we carry out ceremony, carry out practices that have conservation in mind. And so these fishing systems are really these really complex systems that connect to, to so much. And so when you say like to go back to a time before government or before regulations and restrictions, I guess something I want to make clear is that we've always, we've always had government, we've always had regulations and restrictions, we might call them something different, but there's always been a way of taking care of these places that has been really conscientious and, and scientific and is the reason why there's been just so many salmon for early colonizers to come and encounter, right? They arrived on this coast and thought that it was just this endless bounty and that it was an accident and that there right. are direct quotes about, you know, Indians not making use of the land, seeing yeah. it as missed opportunity rather than the product of very good conscientious care. Absolutely. And I, I think that's um, so much of what we're talking about here today. And that, you know, looking at what a balanced and healthy fishing life looks like, um, I love how you flipped that all around, that it's always been that in your governance for your nation's way. And I think. I think for for white people, for Westerner perspective, like we're 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 coming from it's understanding like Canadian government or U.S. government and who came in and said things like, "Look at what people aren't using this land. People aren't just eradicating fish out of the river. So you must not know how." To govern this and the whole point is it's because of that ancient knowledge and reciprocal relationship that it was that way and and then that changed mm -hmm. yeah profoundly and we see that we see that across so many different kinds of ecosystems here whether we're looking at clam gardens or fire management there have been these really strong systems in place that that center that care and that science that were really 
disrupted through colonization, often through the outright banning of these practices, whether it's the outlawing of specific fishing technologies or prohibiting the use of, of fire in a, in a way to take care of the landscape. Um, and that does so much, you know, when I talk about fish being connected to all of these parts of who we are, when we take away the, the fishing technology, the practice or the right to fish, we're then endangering all that that's connected to. We're endangering the culture, the identity, the laws, the language, the practices that are inherently linked to fish. And inseparable. Well, I, and, and that's the interesting thing, I think, because we've talked to people about fire yes. too, indigenous culture, and just that it's so integrated it's all integrated. So you can't just take out the one thing, like you're saying, and have everything else work. It's all part of a big plan. And it's all, like you said, integrated into your rituals and all that stuff. You can't just say you can't. Yeah. Well, and unfortunately, we've seen that, yes, they can. And, and yes, we can, because I'm part of that culture. But just that uh, it's beautifully put how you said that really made that make sense in my brain that yeah it's 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 woven into the fabric you can't just pick out one thread yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well it's so true and you know too Andrew I was thinking too if you could just talk to us a little bit about not only you can't separate it from the people you can't separate it from the land and the animals and talk to us a little bit about that reciprocal relationship that um when interrupted is so detrimental. Yeah, well, I love, I think there's huge power in kind of again, flipping it around because I'm actively reminded of this by so many elders in, in my circles who, when they hear about concerns around loss of language or loss of culture, their solution is, well, just go back to the land because that is where our ancestors founded in the first place. And so there's, I think there's real power in, as we re-engage in these places and as we reassert our sovereignty over our fisheries and practice these life ways once again, um, it means that we can reconnect with something that's been so severely severed. It doesn't make it all the way better. There's so much that's been lost in, in the wake of that, that, that may never come back. But I think that we can work together again, like as contemporary people to think about what it means to be Niska, for example, in, in a really changed world with a really changed Nass River. Yeah, exactly. And you know, what, what you just said reminded me of just again, like the, the changes, like um, just thinking about dams that were built, right? And how and when you said severing, and that to me is an example, just for our listeners to sort of get some more, that's why I mentioned dams, because it is a severing. And there's some talk, some places of opening some dams up. I don't know if that'll happen, but, um, you know, I think that's where, you know, Western government has interfered so deeply and um, I, I think about how so much of the fish can't get where they want to, and then everybody suffers, right? The the animals suffer in that whole ecosystem, and then the forest suffers, and it's just this incredible um, shift of biodiversity in such mm -hmm. a damaging way. Um, I work with some colleagues in um, the Okanagan region, uh, Silk's people, Dr. Jeanette Armstrong and, and colleagues that work with her, and in some recent collaborative work that I was reviewing of theirs, they shared that there were three salmon populations left in their region attached to the Columbia River because of the extent of damming. And it's such a frightening prospect to think about a world where yeah. people can't get fish. This summer, um, I brought a, a handful of of gayuks, our dried salmon, down to an elder on the Fraser. And uh yeah, he was in he was in tears in receiving it because they couldn't get sockeye last summer. There were no openings, no allowances to get fish. And we here on Lisms are really fortunate that 
our fish are are running reasonably well. They are facing peril for sure, but not to the same extent as some of our neighbors to the south, as well as neighbors to the north, looking to the Yukon. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty grave and it's pretty grim where there's whole communities without access to fish. Well, I'm really glad you mentioned that specifically that um, your colleague was saying that there's only three species left because often I think a salmon is a salmon is a salmon, right? And that we're talking about, well, salmon can get up the river, but again, the depth of disruption and um, it, it's, it's, um, it must be overwhelming. Does it overwhelm you days? I mean, it, it's, 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 it feels, it can feel so big. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it's definitely grief inducing, like everything else that's attached to colonial change and climate change. Um, but I think that, you know, salmon have been here for six million years and they've found incredible ways to adapt. And we see, I mean, we see their ranges expanding northward, which is its own concern when they're arriving in whole new territories, finding themselves in Inuit Nunangat and communities there being like, what are these fish? Yeah. So creating whole new complexities, absolutely. Um, and that in part, I think that that also speaks to the power of indigenous fishing technologies. If I focus specifically on salmon for a second, in that salmon and specifically sockeye, which are just, I mean, they're my favorite fish and they're delicious. Um, yeah. But sockeye populations are really diverse within a system. They home right back to where they're from. There right. can be dozens or hundreds of different populations within a single system that are each their own population, right? They, they're their own kind of unit within that larger species. And many indigenous fishing methodologies were and are deeply selective and so could allow us to target on a specific river, a very specific run coming through at a specific time. And so we could make a decision about, well, they're healthy. So we know that we can take from them and spare the others that are in a more precarious position. So like the more we can get population specific, I think the more we can be on, on a better track, the risks that are introduced through say industrial scale fishing. When we think about what that looks like in the salmon world, those are major fisheries that happen in marine waters where salmon are all intermingled, all the different species and populations are all mixed up together. Right. And so grabbing a, a seine net or a gill net out of those waters means that all of those fish are all together. And so it's an indiscriminate way of approaching the activity of fishing. But if we shift upriver and use technologies that allow us to be, to be inherently choosy, we can make decisions on that population level um, before affecting all of the other fish. Well, yes, and that's my next question. And I want to dig into this because, you know, let's break down the differences and the stark restrictions that indigenous fisheries face in contrast to industrial fishing. And like you use the term, you know, indiscriminate fishing practices. I, I want to break this down. Um, I think it's really critical for people to hear the differences. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot... There's again a lot within that question. So I might think about a specific example just to start. Um, on the Babine system, which is in the upper Skeena watershed, um, the Babine is a major source of sockeye within the Skeena. Um, I believe it accounts for roughly 90% of the sockeye that go up the Skeena, which is a fair number of fish. Wow. Um, there's a specific stretch of that of that system that historically would be fished by the people there um, by way of weirs. So these uh, kind of fence looking structures that span the river and they effectively, um, as the fish are migrating upstream, they hit the weir and they get kind of funneled towards a trap box where they can be sorted through before they go along their migration. So it allows us to kind of pause, pick out the ones that 
we're interested in and open it up and let the others through. Um, and it's a wonderful way to, to fish. There are nations across the Pacific that, that use that practice. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. It's a, it's a very effective way in, in many respects, but when it was first seen, um, by many that arrived on this coast, they saw it as a fence, as a barrier, as a blockade, effectively as a dam. But the reality is, like, like for the Babine, on that particular stretch, they might have, at that time, I believe they would have like six or eight weirs consecutively. They would be spaced out, but they would be different sets of families fishing these different weirs. And if they were a full blockage, you would never put one upstream of another, right? right. It, the existence of many indicates that there's passage um, and that they are these selective gears. But in the early 1900s and 1904, five, six, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans Canada came to the Babine to remove the weirs that were there, saying that they are blocking passage of fish and that this is a critical threat to the downstream fisheries that are taking place. Um, all of the major fisheries to feed the canneries that are in the mouth of the river and, and in the ocean. And so they pulled the weirs down and they gave the communities rotten gill nets in their place. And so that started in 1904. And then in 1905, I believe it was, the community almost starved because the rotten nets they were given were not effective for them to catch fish to feed their community. So 1906 comes and they're like, we're putting these weirs back in place. And so they did. And that was met with DFO showing up um with a mandate to to remove them and the language around it is pretty unequivocal around what its purpose is and what it's meant to do um but they went in to to remove them and they were ultimately successful in prohibiting and outlawing weirs um for a, a span of time but in 1906 when they were pulling down the weir the story goes that there were uh, a couple of, I think, I think matriarchs, at least that's what's in my mind is like these badass matriarchs that are on the weir and they, right. and they took the DFO officers off the weir and sat on them in the river. <laughs> they needed to just kind of put them in their place. And I think it's an effective kind of mental image of it's just such a different way to see the world. They see these things as a threat to salmon, whereas we see it as a way to to respect them and uphold our, our obligations to them. And then comes, if we go ahead decades, all of a sudden DFO has its own fence in that same location at the Babine that's used to this day for, for monitoring fish passage. And if you look at it, it's the exact same as a as a weir that that would have once stood there. I mean, now it's made of a aluminum instead of wood, but it's absolutely the the same technology, the same approach in the same location. And thankfully, through recent negotiations, it's now also owned and operated um, by the nation um, for for I believe both monitoring as well as harvest. Um, but it's taken a lot, and it's incredible to think that it has taken that much just to get back to a place that we once were. Well, and, and, and a practice that was conscious and full of um, knowledge through years, hundreds, tens of thousands of years of experience. There's, um, you know, and, and it, 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 it's like the native fishing has the ecosystem in mind and there's there are there's reasons for everything and then you have to me industry that does not and i think you know just to sort of zoom out a little bit and talk about bycatch because i think that's a really important um thing to highlight and i think it's a good example of what you're talking about and if, if you could just talk a little bit about that and you were saying like with these weirs where it eliminates bycatch in that way of you're, you're selective, you're conscious, you understand there's a whole system happening in here and these massive industrial fishing trawlers and they just, they scoop up everything. And it only, you know, the devastation is almost incomprehensible and it's happening on a daily basis. 
Um, but if you could just talk a, a little bit of that from your perspective. Yeah, well, I think it's um, it's almost telling on itself in the language that's used. Another term for, for bycatch is discard. Like that, that is the term used to describe the fish being returned to the water. I think it really paints a clear picture of what they see of those fish and and where the care lies. Um, it's a it is a huge problem, and it's one that I've that I've studied through throughout my PhD. Um, I was working on fisheries and in, in lisms and looking at commercial harvest in marine waters near our river and looking at the survival of bycatch. So within a two week span in, in 2016, the seine fisheries in that area had released over 46,000 sockeye. They were able to retain very few. The openings at the time, the, the management um, regulations at the time meant that sockeye couldn't be retained. So those being intercepted had to be thrown back. So I believe that it was 495 sockeye that were kept for harvest um, in the commercial fishery and 46,000 thrown over. And so I was there with many colleagues to radio tag 400, just a subset of those being thrown back just to see what their fate is and understand what that means for actually getting home. And what we found is like quite a complex picture that's still a story that we're that we're working on telling but the the Cole's notes are that roughly a quarter did not make it home to their spawning grounds attributable to to being bycaught and so that's thousands of fish not making it yes to their spawning areas as a as a direct result of that and since then um the the panel that manages the, the whole fishery in the region has taken into account an added mortality factor from commercial fisheries that accounts to some extent for this bycatch mortality. Um, so we're seeing a little bit of like a door opening for thinking a bit more broadly about impact and having that kind of account into the formulas that are used to manage really complex salmon fisheries. But we're really only at the start and there are so many fisheries across the Pacific where bycatch is monumental in scale and, and the impacts are accounted for nowhere. Yeah. And again, just the, you know, the devastating loss of, of every single one of those fish, the impact of losing one times, however many you're saying, you said a quarter. Um, yeah is is it's again it's it's overwhelming and you know you 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 use the, the the term complex and it's making me think of my next question um if you're okay to move on from sure. this um there's a term i've been hearing a lot about and in english i'm reading it it's it's being called two-eyed seeing and it's a term that is gaining a lot of attention i feel like in the world of science and conservation and um, and I'm feeling like it might be losing some of its its real meaning. It, it seems to be, um, from my perspective and the little I know about it, it's very flat, very two sided. Like it's Western, like a Western society perspective. Um, would you break down the original indigenous meaning and how you are using this concept in your work? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, for context, at a Weptamuk or the gift of multiple perspectives, also known as two-eyed seeing, um, is a Mi'kmaq teaching. And I was raised in, in Mi'kmaq territory on the East Coast, as I was noting earlier. Um, and it's a teaching that I've come to learn primarily about from Mi'kmaq elder, Dr. Albert Marshall, who is a major carrier of this teaching. Um, he and his late wife, Merdina, did a lot of work to raise up Etowaptamuk across many spaces. And we see these beautiful examples that have emerged across health and, and education. But only recently have we seen engagement in, in the so-called natural sciences wanting to, to take it up. 
And its original intent, that gift of multiple perspectives is really a question of, of understanding that when we have a shared problem, that it is most logical and most valuable to welcome in all sources of knowledge that, that might help address it. And so it is absolutely about the coming together of ways of knowing, but it could be a multitude of indigenous ways of knowing, or it could be indigenous and, and Western understandings, not necessarily in like this 50-50 formula kind of structured approach of if we get half of one and half of another, then we're going to find what we're looking for. Right. It's a question of seeing that validity all around, welcoming in the tools, the knowledges that are best going to serve the problem, and then selecting from those accordingly together. And the way that Albert, I mean, to speak with Albert about this is what's most transformative. But what he is most committed to is that very word, is transformation. It isn't about just calling something to I'd seeing and feeling as though we've done our job to include Indigenous knowledge systems in the process. It has to be about transformative action. And so if the actions that come out aren't actually transformative, then we're not living the words that that are really intended there. And so as much as possible, I'm I'm really inviting folks to think about using that word at a Waptamuk because it's not a direct translation to two-eyed seeing. It's about a lot more. Yeah, right, right. A challenge that is here and that that is everywhere is how frequently words like these get co-opted, get misused, and it creates a really challenging landscape for many of us to to work in. My colleagues and I regularly find a lot of tension in that. It's almost like the colonization of of language. And it's this, we're always having to evolve the terminology. I get some colleagues asking like, oh, you're always changing your language. But the reality is that we're kind of forced to because they get misused and misapplied. And it's there's always this need to kind of differentiate from that um, flattening, as you said, right? That it it becomes so much less than its original intent. And there's a lot of danger in that. And so it's not that I want to move away from two-eyed seeing. I, I adore the principles that, that Albert has helped me learn. Um, but I think that it it does require that kind of like complex view and, and nuance in its understanding and most importantly in its application. Well, yeah, and thank you so much for breaking that down so beautifully because, um, you know, I, I feel like this perspective, it's so beautiful and it's so tr filled with so much knowledge and answers, like solutions to me. There's I when I first came across it, I thought, oh my gosh, this is this is the answer forward. This is this is the way that the planet can be saved and, and healed. And there's something um, you know, it, it reminds me also, and I'm curious on your perspective, you know, to the word knowledge and science, right? And I think like inherent to this conversation and my, my questions for you, it's like, what do you see as, what is knowledge? What's the, the definition of knowledge and what's the definition of science where for me, knowledge, I mean, it really means to know, right? And if you know something, you have a depth and you were saying like, it's not this flat sort of two-eyed two seeing, it's, there's depth there. And for me, science, though I love it so much, it's, it's traditionally and historically been very objective, very much outside. There doesn't, there isn't often in the, the past been a lot of, of depth, but what's your perspective on that? Well, I think the root of the word science is that, that one in the same meaning. It is to know, it comes from the Latin scientia and the word sire. So it, it has that same origin. I fully agree that it's, perceived as this like objective enterprise that sets values aside i'm really happy to be seeing across many scientific circles a departure from that viewpoint currently i'm teaching a course that is um highly enrolled at, at ubc 
uh, called First Year Seminar in Science. I believe it has over 700 students, but the students get pocketed out into groups of 25 to engage right, right out the gate, right in their first year in a seminar course where we discuss science and society and what science is. And it's in that context that we can have these really rich conversations. And all of these first year students to me are coming in with a deep understanding that that's the reality, that people have values, people have biases. We need to be transparent about them so we can address them as we move forward. I think we're seeing the same parallel conversations emerging in the realm of, of journalism as well, right? Like there's yeah. no view from nowhere. Everyone's influenced by, by something <laughs> and it does us no favors to pretend that those aren't there. What that yeah. has done is created this world of of science that has been deeply problematic, deeply racist, and has favored certain groups over others in, in its process, right? Whether that's overlooking consent from, from indigenous peoples or actually conducting science on us and misappropriating the, the samples or the data. The history of science when it comes to Indigenous peoples is so dark. So there's a lot of weight with the use of that word. And so in, at times I use it lightly in that I, I think that it carries risks and, and danger in the same way that Linda Tuhiwai Smith in, in her book talks about research is a dirty word. You know, to, to be in my community context and say, I'm here to do research. That's not how I want to portray myself. That that casts me in a whole different light. That's not what I'm here for. Yeah. I am a researcher, but I live here. The, those are two separate things. Um, and so science carries that same weight, but I think it also carries a power because it it helps us recognize that those knowledge systems, those ways of knowing were experimental. They were based on observation. They led us to good systems of care that that were very much um, the the product of understanding the world around us in the same ways that the scientific process is, is meant to. It's just guided by different principles and I think positioned towards quite different ends. What was the title of the book and the author? Oh, Linda Tuhiwai Smith, uh, Decolonizing Methodologies. Okay, yeah, I just want to get that down. All right, go ahead, Jen, yeah. I was just going to ask, because a lot of times to me, the thing when I think of science too, it can be very um, just the facts and very cold and and very, um, there's just not a lot of, uh, seems like, which can be good to just take facts, but to just pull out that part without having the the humanity and the, 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 um, the connection i feel like that that knowledge to me has sort of feels much more holistic and science feels like it's just taking this one piece that's just the which what is why some people i think like feel like science is very um hard to put your brain around because it's just so reductive i guess maybe in a way that it just feels cold and like oh that's just um it's missing some heart i guess or something like that which I, I i understand like experimentation and stuff you just want to do but i feel like that's part of the problem here too is indigenous knowledge versus western science especially that seems like they're coming from very different places and what i think like you were saying doesn't have to be 50 50 but the collaborative idea which is sounds like what this two-eyed seeing is about is collaboration and bringing the best parts of everybody you know whether it's different tribes coming together or western science as what well, and indigenous knowledge but the collaborative part feels respectful to me and it feels hopeful to me in a way that um just tr just more of the separation and the us versus them is not working. The thing that you're talking about too, Andrew, in context of that is that transformational action, yeah. right? And I think that's the goal. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, and in a in a paper that I co-wrote with Albert and, and many other colleagues on the transformational potential of Etowaptamuk for fisheries, 
in general. Um, in that work, we we made clear how Edwaptimuk is also not standalone. There are conceptual frameworks that emerge from peoples around the world who have developed really similar framings and understandings and, and really position themselves towards that end, that like epistemic pluralism, that that welcoming in those different ways of knowing. And I think that really is the difference between these, these understandings and Western science in that Western science is positioned towards singularity. It's positioned towards dominance and knowledge hierarchies and positioning itself above all others. And so it doesn't want to come down to a certain level, but it raises a tension for me that that does cause me pause, which is, and I, I want to be attentive to the time, but it's that there are so many people, you know, as as Kate was noting, that are really coming towards this this term two-eyed seeing. And it it just really strikes me that it's at this moment where we're growing in terms of indigenous rights and the recognition that it's precisely at this moment that everyone is like, oh yeah, indigenous knowledge systems are valid, but we must pair them with Western science for them to hold water. Right. And so it's there that I trip up because that is there. not that is not what it's about fundamentally. When we come back to the teaching, yeah. it's yeah. not about validating one knowledge system by way of another. Right. Right. And I think that's where, again, it's like your work at UBC in the Center for Indigenous uh, Fisheries. This is where I feel like you're implementing that perspective, right? Making it actually very real for what it is and then putting this into the practices. And and I I, I mean, I, I appreciate you spending some time with this just because I think it was so important to to break that down and how it actually plays out. Um, so thank you for that. I'll just, um, oh, I'm so, so um, not wanting to let you go, but in, in, in the consideration of your time, I will, I will ask you our last question that we ask everyone um, in context to our conversations. But Andrea, why from your perspective is this an important conversation? I mean, you know, what new awarenesses and connections can we gain? And I know it's general, but it's important. Yeah, it's very, it's a big question and one that's hard to answer swiftly, but I'll do my best. Um, I think we're, we're at a point where we see a, a very national, international need for greater awareness of what indigenous fisheries are, what indigenous fishing rights are we've arrived at a time with like a shifted a shifted baseline in, in a social sense where people grow up today without seeing indigenous peoples engaged in fisheries in many ways or they see misrepresentations of of what those mean and so their view of our connection to fish and what they mean to us is is so deeply transformed and I think that's really multi-layered. There are problems within our education systems, there are problems in, in our media narratives and how these get discussed and portrayed. And so there's a lot of work to do there. I think that's one thing that brings me hope and that I often remind those that are that are in my circles is like there's never been a time that we've needed all of us doing this work more. So this is a reason to like to be galvanized and to work together effectively. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot that I could pull on, but there, the reality is that we have, we have constitutionally protected rights in Canada that involve, uh, a right for food, social, and ceremonial fisheries through the, the Sparrow decision from the Supreme Court of Canada. And commercial interests are protected and a right to a so-called moderate livelihood through the Marshall decision. Um, both of these decisions are now decades old, um, but they are they are in place. They are meant to guarantee our, our, our connection and our priority 
in in the fisheries realm, but rarely are they respected or understood or correctly applied. And so when we see nations asserting these rights, often they're found to be criminalized in the process of it. They're seen as fishing illegally when what they're doing is trying to speak back to those constitutionally protected rights. And so it's an incredibly complex situation but where we see these nations, for example, on the East Coast in the Mi'kmaq lobster fishery, they've put forward a plan in Sebeganagadi that, that is a plan. It's a, man, a management plan for a small number of licenses to engage in the lobster fishery in a way that they see as, as fit for their nation, as they have the right to do, as they have the right to engage in getting a moderate livelihood from the lobster fishery. But since that important martial decision that guaranteed that right, there's no way to get a license to, to earn a moderate fishery. There's no way to participate and exercise that right, leaving us really with no options. And so as these fishers engage in these rights assertions, which absolutely they need to be doing, they're being met with huge hostility and violence. And this is such a grave situation because I think that the people in opposition to the indigenous fishery feel like it's a direct threat to them. It's a direct threat to their claims, to their identity, to their well-being. Yeah. And so this is the challenge we face is to, to recognize in, in the spirit of Edoweptimuk that it, it's not about that. It's not about um, removing the settler population in, in its entirety from this place, what people are asking for is for respect and participation and recognition in a deep way that respects indigenous authority over these long-standing fisheries that have been in place. So what we need now is, is a movement towards the restoration of that sovereignty. Myself and many colleagues are actively talking about this idea of, of fish back, of bringing like the land back movement to the conversation of fish and fisheries. Right. Because I think that's, that is the way forward. Yeah, that's just, oh, so beautifully said. That is the new awareness. There's so many new awarenesses that you brought to us today. And, um, you know, the story of the lobster is a whole other podcast in itself. And those stories, every so much of what you said is is a whole other story. And um, but Andrew, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your effort in speaking with us. And um, and and you just won an incredible award, didn't you? Yes, the, the Newman Award uh, just last month. And tell us about that award for just a sec. Sure. Um, so it's it is about making major contributions in the realm of ocean conservation and research. Um, I've been getting teased by colleagues because it's about making a major contribution or a lifetime career award. So I'm getting a lot of teasing <laughs> about my long career in, in life. So young. Funny. <laughs> um, but it's, I think what I love about, about this as one example is that like, this is the, the awesome side of, of academia and of science. This is something that colleagues nominated me for without my knowing or without my involvement. And um, I think academia can be pretty cutthroat and cold and unfriendly, but it can also be lifting each other up. And I think this is a, a good example of that. And so I'm really grateful to the Raincoast Foundation for, for putting me forward for it and, and giving me that award. Well, incredible. And it's an inspiration because it's telltale to maybe where things are moving and that's inspiring. So Dr. Andrea Reed, thank you so much for your time today. Um, thank, thank you for, again, the conversation and for your beautiful background that I got to stare at for 45 minutes. So thank you so much. We hope to talk with you another time um, and we'll just keep tracking your work. So thank you so much. Thank you for hosting me. Thank you for the great questions. Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Takeaway. Um, so 
without knowing a ton about this, um, even though I've read stuff, I've been listening, I've been learning a lot about it, and yet I feel like Andrea offered this perspective in a, in a new way for me. So I want to dig into government and governance, systems and practices, in context to history and how this so deeply connects to ecology and landscape and ecosystems and all that. So, and obviously it's in context to fish, but I think this echoes far beyond. And um, I am gonna do the best I can to sort of hash out what I'm talking about here. So we remember, right, in our conversation with her, um, in my second question, in my second main question, um, I asked, and I'll just read it here, I said, can we go back, back to a time before government, before industry, before regulations and restrictions to people and fish, before dams and reconstruction of the land and rivers. Talk to us about what kind, what a balanced and healthy and integrated fishing life looked like in relationship, and the relationship indigenous nations had to fish, rivers, and forests. And I don't know, it was the first thing she said, but basically what like hit me like kind of like a two by four was she's like, well, we've always had those things. Mm -hmm. She said, yeah. and I feel like she kind of flipped it on us head or whatever you want to call that. Um, she says, we've always had governance. We've had systems. We've yeah. had restrictions. We've had rules that you play by. That was always and already in place for I don't know how long, tens of thousands and thousands of years. So, you know, she talked about colonizers kind of walking into a place like in the Niska Nation where they lived for 10,000 years, right? Time before memory. And they, colonizers walked in and be like, wow, what a waste. Look at all this fish everywhere, right? These people, these people clearly don't know how to govern or utilize this resource. And that type of language, which is so critical in this conversation, right? So that's when, when you, when you break all of this down, um, and I think I, I just want to be so, so clear, like, in context to an ecosystem, when you walk in and you know nothing about what you're talking about, you don't ask questions, you don't learn, you don't find out what the existing systems are and all of that stuff, a, governan a governance that is well in place, and you see a flourishing ecosystem, right? And then you turn that into words like utilize and resource. And she talked about how, yes, of course you can use the word, I mean, well, she didn't say this, but I think she would say you can use the, re the word resource, but when you use it in context to the word indiscriminate, suddenly now you're devastating an ecosystem. You are, you are taking out the balance and the understanding and like, you and I were talking about before we started recording, you were saying how she was talking about the weird, the systems of using the weirs and how, you know, you and I don't know how to pick the fish, but they had this incredible system in place. Hmm. And it's why when you walked into that space 200 years ago, you said, oh my gosh, look at this. Look at all these thriving fish. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And it is, I don't remember what the machine was called, what she was talking about, but that whole thing of when you just scoop them all up and then you throw a bunch out, back out, and that how a quarter of that population then dies because yeah. it's just this, it's it's not a, um, it's not a viable way to do it. It's, I mean, right. anyway, it just was, it's just, it's, 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 it was just very, like from the moment that she said, well, it's funny that you say that because all those existed before, it just shows me again, our perspective is, before government, there was a there was a whole there was a whole system here before still, mm -hmm. and it was working. And it was um, anyway. It was just interesting, not only from the ecosystem 
perspective and what that does to the um, to the population, but also how she kept talking about um, for them to be able to practice do their practices. Yes, as part of their culture. Yeah, is like when they just pulled the weirs out. It's like no, no, no. That's you can't just. You're not allowed to just do that. You know. Oopsie. Oh, right. Right. Anyway, it just was. It's just another um, another sort of jaw dropping awareness for me that oh, okay, yeah, there. We have a long way to go. So oh my gosh, we have a long way to go. I feel like it's almost like we we we're just starting, and I think you know. I think it's this this idea that these complex systems and governance um, and these rules sort of to play by are all in support first and foremost to the ecosystem, right? It's like this is all was all existing. You, you you live with and among and together, and it's like how can you sustain an ecosystem that then can sustain you? And I think. Um, I think that it's just, again, we have a, the white community, the white Western thinking has a long way to go. And it's almost like you, you were just saying earlier, oh yeah, that's right. And I don't even think we're even there yet. Like, oh yeah, that's right. Like, I don't even know what that is a lot of the time. No, but just the awareness that, yes, that, that, that things have been going for a long time. And I think one thing that's I, I'm remembering from other Native American people that we've talked to and also from the um, Robin Wall Kimmerer book that we read and it's just they they begin with a respect for the earth yeah they come in with that as a great respect for the earth so that is what sort of um, governs all the decisions they make talk about governance you know and that um, is very different than when what you're coming in to do is make the most amount of money that you can. Right. It's going right. to have a different flavor. And so yeah. it's, it's yep. again, another example of just another area where that disparity is happening. And not that making money is bad, but money being the top priority is all oh, right it's in consequences it's going to yeah. have consequences and back to indiscriminate exactly right, right. Yeah. and when this is then built on 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 blood and all other kinds of things i mean it just goes so deeply and i think that um you know why not this is where we need to give this these these things back to the people who have always known how to do this right? To me, the answer to indiscriminate fishing industry is this conversation with Andrea. That's the answer to me. And it's creating, um, these are the answers. And I don't want to get into it, but she broke down the two-eyed saying, again, that was, that's very connected to this. And she so beautifully reframed that and broke that down. But it's so, it's so critical to this. And I think, if we let's give these these issues and these challenges that we've created back to to what I see as indigenous knowledge is also indigenous science. And she said that word can be a little complicated for the indigenous communities. I totally get that. Yeah. And I, I, I think, though, that this is for me where these answers um, of balance and um, all of those sort of systems need, can come back into play and and they can also make money, right? And this is right. the balance. But, yeah, and, and, and the word that popped into my head when you were talking is like, what's the, what's the um, antithesis of like indiscriminate? And I was just thinking intentional, I- intentional fishing, intentional, whatever fire starting intentional you know it's all about right. there's there's right. a deep intention behind it um and there's a lot that that has gone into that it's not just oh you silly people don't know what you're doing and you have no idea how to make this right cool. and by saying that the devastation that and the wake of that continues um so yeah absolutely um and you know we could talk about this for a long time i i'm 
I'm, I'm so grateful to Andrea for having the conversation with us. And it was um, something I would love to continue. I hope that she will come back and talk to us more. Um, so thank you everyone for listening. Um, thank you for uh, your support. Um, please share this episode. I think that this is one of those episodes that really can echo through um, so many different things um, happening in our country. And I think it's so much uh, an answer to so many things. And so please share it. And of course, for, for more information, you can head over to our website, kindredpodcast.co for the show notes and the guest links and websites and all that kind of extra information, all the logistics of the conversation. Where you, And you can also sign up for the newsletter. And then, like we talked about subscribing and um, supporting us. And again, keep following us on Instagram and Facebook at The Kindred Pod. And um, yeah, I look forward to a lot more of these conversations. And uh, thanks again, everyone. And thanks again to Dr. Andrea Reed. Take care and lots of love. Kindred is hosted by me and my sister, Jen. Produced by Kat Gaddy and myself. Sound production and editing by Dan Cooper. Original music by Ellie Grace. And our Kindred artwork was created by Lindsay Coffin. Please follow, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And feel free to contact us through our website at kindredpodcast.co, where you can also find details about Kindred Plus, our subscription service, as well as links to our social media accounts and show notes.